0: Church, you look good this morning. <laughs> it's so good to see everybody. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, Esther's gonna read the word for us this morning before we get going. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter five. John chapter five and Esther with her beautiful shirt will take it away for us this morning. Thank
1: you. Don't stand near me, you make me feel short.
0: <laughs> you are short, I mean.
1: <laughs> so we are in John chapter five. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God.
0: Thank you, Esther. All right, you guys ready? Russ is ready. Thanks, Russ. Church, like I said before, you look good this morning. It is so good to be here. It is so good to be back. For those of you that are new, my name is JT. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you missed it or didn't know, for the last two months, I have been out. I've been on sabbatical. Um, and so th- this is something at, that we decided as a church leadership um, that was needed after about 10 years of, minute, of, of being a pastor and more years of ministry that it would be good for me to take a break, to get a little, a little recharged, to get more healthy, not that I was unhealthy, but just to work on my health, work on my family's health um, to grow and, and just to, to make sure that I was ready to, to, to continue to do this for years and years and years to come. Because as you've heard me say before, I want to die at Freshwater. I mean, if I died literally preaching it would be traumatic but that would be amazing right it would be traumatic for you It'd be great for me um, but you know God could call me calls us all to things all the time I could end up somewhere someday but just so you know I have no plan to um, so the sabbatical was nothing about that. Um, We just wanted to, to, we just want to make sure our leaders are healthy. Like this is something we want, some of our other leaders have taken sabbaticals, um, but what we want to do is for our pastors in particular, about every seven years, give them a break. And I said this because, one of the reasons we're doing this, I said this before I left, I don't know if you know the statistic, but only one out of ten pastors make it to the end. I think pretty much every pastor that starts off a pastor thinks that's what they're going to do the rest of their life, right? That's what they're called to. Yet only 1 in 10 finish the race. Only 1 in 10 are standing at the end and are still pastoring people and reti- or retire as a pastor. And we just don't want to be a statistic at this church, right? I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want Brandon or any of our other pastors or leaders to be a statistic. And so, um, I had to humble myself. Um, we actually said we wanted to do this every seven years and for me it's been nine. Um, 10, 11 of being a pastor, so um, I had to humble myself and say, you know, this is not just for other people, Um, this is for me too. I I need a break too to focus on the Lord. And so, um, I'll be honest with you, the break was amazing. It was so good for my soul, it was good for my family, it was good for my relationship with my wife. Um, We really got to focus on a lot of things that it just feels like we didn't have time to to focus on. Um, And so, I missed a lot of things, I missed a lot of you. but it was really good. And so, um, just so you know, what, what I did while I was gone, I did a lot of reading. I, I really studied a lot about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. I spent some time on eschatology. Um, I took some time not studying. I realized about halfway through that my brain actually needed a break. Um, I don't know if that was from the Lord, but it felt like It was like... It's okay to let your brain rest, and so while my brain was resting, we did a lot of uh, house projects. We, we did some remodeling at our house, and we finished up a lot of that, and, and did, I, I watched a lot of basketball. My, my daughter is a seventh grade basketball player at Pleasant View, where they're eight and one. Uh yeah. So we watched a lot of basketball. Um, one of my favorite things, other than hanging out with my kids and my wife, was, um, I don't know if you know this, but if you're involved with ministry, like highly involved with ministry, you know this, um, being a pastor. Uh, sometimes kind of leads to your friendships outside of the church suffering a little bit. right? you don't get the time to invest. And so I had a getaway with three of my other friends, four of my other friends, and we went and spent three days and hung out at a cabin on the top of a 250-foot cliff that someone in our church provided for us. I don't want to say their name because they did it out of generosity and I'm sure they wouldn't want me to say. So I'll just say a generous person in our church said, go use our cabin. Um, and we, we hadn't done that in, what, 15 years? like just got away with the guys. When, do you, when does anybody have time to get away with their friends like that? I don't, But it, and it was incredible. Um, something else you guys might not have known, we went and visited churches every Sunday, and so I got to go visit a lot of other churches in town of pastors that either I respect or I do mentor discipleship with. I'm in a pastor's group, and, and that was really amazing. When, time, when do I have time to go visit other churches? Pastors don't get to do that, and it was great. And I'll just say, um, visiting those other churches was really good, and I saw some things that were really great, and I saw some things like, okay, I know why we don't do it that way, right, of course. Um, but I kind of just say, our worship team's amazing. For nobody, on pay, nobody that's paid, nobody on staff, they all just volunteer their time. Most of these other churches I went had, had a full-time or at least a part-time music person. But not, not only do they are they talented and they do a great job, but they're so focused on the gospel. When I heard a lot of the songs at these other churches, they were good. But a lot of the songs were really focused on us and how, how we feel. And how we feel is important, isn't it? Related to the Lord, that's a, that's an important thing, but the number one thing is our focus on Jesus, because He is the one that gives us hope and strength and peace, and our worship team is just so focused on the gospel, on the truth, and then how that truth informs how we feel. Um, and that that was, inc- I, just, I, I was so thankful for our worship team after going to other, these other places that kind of had more professional worship teams, yet yeah, we have a bunch of volunteers and you guys just kill it, so thank you for all that you do and all that you give to make sure that happens. Um, And, uh, man, and so visiting these other churches was fantastic. Um, But I'll tell you, the number one thing is um, spending time with my wife and my family. Um, You guys don't realize this, but as a pastor's wife, Christy carries a tremendous amount of weight, too, because she won't allow me to carry it alone. She just won't. And so we walk through all those things together. We carry the weight of everything that's happening in your lives and in our church, and we do that lovingly and willingly. It's what what I, I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, but for for us to have a chance to just invest in our almost 16 year old and almost 13 year old in a time in their lives when it's so important for for them to see how much we love them and that the gospel holds true even in the world that they're seeing more and more of was just an, an invaluable time for my family. We had dinner together every night except for Keaton's basketball games. Every night for two months. You just can't replace that time that we got. Right? That was at a ama- every dinner at the dinner table together every single night. We did family night every night except when I was gone for three days and Keaton's basketball games for two months. And church, I just want to say thank you for allowing me to do that, allowing me to step away, to do that for a couple months, to invest in my family. And I, I, you're going you're gonna to hear it today. I'm ready to be back, <laughs> right? I'm ready to preach, I'm ready to go, I feel, I feel reinvigorated, I feel ready to go, I'm, I feel ready to jump, and, and so in particular I want to say thank you, hey Brandon and Cassie, thank you for bearing that weight alone for that time, Tony and Tori, the rest of our deacons, Larry up here and the rest of Esther was up here, the rest of our deacons who really picked up the slack, our other leaders of all the different ministries that picked up the slack to allow for my family to be able to do that for two months, it made it harder on them to allow us to do that, but they willingly did that and even encouraged us and really fought pretty ferociously to make sure that nobody was calling us or texting us or telling us what was going on at the church. Um, There's a reason that they were so ferocious. I won't say who, but I saw someone in public from the church. Someone who's not newer, that's been around for a long time, who was full support of our sabbatical, and it took them 40 seconds to start talking about the church, and they knew they were supposed to. So that's why, that's why the leadership team wanted to protect us, because you just can't help yourselves. I know it, I can't either. I want to talk about the church too, because I love it so much. So thank you for being so protective of our family and giving us that time. It was amazing. So for all of that, all the good that came out of that time and how good it was for my family and for my soul, um, man, I missed a bunch of really good things. Um, not, not only did I miss all of you, and I missed all of you a ton. Um, and I, I mean, I missed my life group and his discipleship, and I missed the Victory Mission guys and, and the devotions there. Um, but I missed a couple of my favorite chapters, not just in John, but in the Bible. Again, I know I say that a lot. I got a lot of favorite chapters. But really, I mean, what's better than Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? It's just super encouraging, super challenging, super amazing. Like this religious leader coming to talk to him like and saying underneath the radar, we know who you are and that, how that conversation, that dynamic goes down. It's just so amazing. And man, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the woman at the well and what that communicates about who our Savior is. Like he's talking to this outcast Samaritan woman and through her, she's the first person that he declares who he truly is to outside of his disciples that he's the Messiah and then basically the whole town gets Saved through the outcast Samaritan woman? That's amazing. It's amazing that's, that's who our, our Savior would go, would go tell. Man, I, I missed those things. But not only that, I missed the first two miracles of the seven great miracles of Jesus in the book of John. Those, those great miracles that prove who he is, that he truly is the Messiah. I miss, missed the first two, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding. And then the last one, I think it was the family worship guide, right? where. Jesus heals the Gentile officer's son, which again is such a big deal. He was a Gentile, not a Jew. The Jews thought that the Messiah was for them. This is a Gentile, not Jewish. A lot of people might even view them as an enemy of the Jews, yet Jesus heals the Gentile officer's son as his second great miracle. Man, I just love these moments. I love them. And so over the last week was kind of like, this last week was kind of pseudo-sabbatical. I I met with Brandon and I met with Larry and um, I started I'm kind of reigniting on John. I listened to all the old, all, all, I listened to all the sermons over the last two months and really got back in to John and I am so ready. I'm so caught up and I'm so ready to cover our story today. Jesus' third miracle, the healing of the paralytic man. And you know what I love, as I went back and I looked through these and I listened to sermons and I read back through John, um, one of the things I love the most is um, what Jesus was showing us leading into our story today that these encounters that Jesus had, these miracles that he performed, showed us again and again, Jesus getting just to right to the heart of things, right to the heart of these different people. And not only was he getting right to the heart of it, but he was doing it in people with wildly different backgrounds. Did you notice that? Like just wildly different backgrounds. We already talked about Nicodemus, the religious leader, and he seemed to be a pretty important man in Jewish society. We got the religious leader, then we go to the Samaritan woman. Jews and, remember, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Jesus, even his disciples were like, Jesus, why are you talking to this woman? And she was an outcast woman. Not only that, she was a Samaritan outcast, yet Jesus engaged with her, got right to the heart of the matter with her, and then a bunch of people get saved. And then again, we have the Gentile officer, an officer, an important person in a completely different world of the Jews. And then today we get to man, a destitute, paralytic man that in this society probably meant he was pretty much a cast aside, pretty much a cast, a cast off. These four people, couldn't possibly have been any more different. And through Jesus, He is showing... Man, He's just showing us something so beautiful, so powerful about who He is and about the Gospel. He is showing us His deep love and affection, not just for Jewish people, and hear me, not just for deserving people, but all people. No matter their race, no matter their background, no matter their socioeconomic status, no matter how important they're viewed in in society, no matter their culture, Jesus wants all to see that they are created in his image, that he loves them, that he will rescue them if they would simply come to him in faith. It's this beautiful picture. These are the kind, listen, I don't know if this is intentional by John or by Jesus, but these are the kind of people, if you were to pick them out, had every reason to be divided, had every reason to hate each other, had every reason not to listen to each other, not to want to engage with each other because of their histories. They had real histories that should have kept them apart, but Jesus engages deeply with all of them. That's that's amazing that that's who our God is, and that's what he is displaying. His love, his grace, his mercy is not based off of what we deserve, what we have done, what we haven't done, or even our history. Jesus is giving us the first hints that he came to unite the world for anyone who would believe in him in faith. Because if you just believe in faith, he is enough to unite us all, despite it all. Church, in a world I don't think anybody's going to disagree with this. In a world that just seems to have gone crazy with division, in a culture just, just saturated with social media and the 24-hour news cycle that is seemingly fo- focused on dividing us into and, and, and different categories, forcing us to take sides on all things. Right? It feels like you have to take sides on all things now, a world where it is normal. It has become normal to cast people aside simply because you disagree with them or you have a difference with them on, on something. Jesus is leaving this beautiful example of who he is and what he is calling us to. As his body, as his family, he's giving us an example of how we engage with a lost world. So I want us to look at the first example of this in Jesus' third miracle of his seven great miracles in John, showing who he really is, the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool. Read with me again in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. We'll read through the first five verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, so there are a lot of feasts that the Jews celebrate. But unlike other places in the gospel, like feasts like, past, like the Passover, like unlike other places in the gospel of John, he doesn't name this feast, which he usually does, but he doesn't here. So it doesn't seem to be that important to John which feast it is, so we don't have to spend a lot of time speculating. A lot of people speculate, but we don't really need to take the time to do that because John didn't think it was important enough. It must not really factor into what's happening today. But, but what, we, what we do know is that this mo- that this moment happened at this pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. So we know biblically, historically and even archeologically that this this sheep this pool at Bethesda at the Sheep Gate existed. Right? They found they found a pool with five colonnades on the north side of the old city of Jerusalem by a small what would have been a small at the time a small gate in the wall around the city of old Jerusalem. So this pool really existed on the north side of the city. And he, here's the thing that um, about this pool. People believed, and we see this in other, in other places in, in, in history and, and uh, like the mission and other places, people believed that if you went to this pool and you waited there, an angel eventually would come by and touch the water and disturb, it would disturb the water, It would ripple the water. And if you got into the water right after this ha- happened, it, there was a possibility you could be healed. So what we see in this passage, right, is there's a bunch of people who have some sort of disability, whatever that might be, and they're just sitting around the pool. You can imagine a guy that's been paralyzed for 38 years, like a lot of people probably were here day after day after day, year after year after year, just waiting for that ripple to happen so that they could jump in the pool and they could be healed. And so I'm calling in the paralyzed man. It says that there were paralyzed people at this pool, but it doesn't actually say this man was paralyzed. But what we do know is that his legs weren't, fu- weren't functional, right? He, he couldn't walk and he, we see later in the story, he couldn't get to the pool faster than other people because he needed help. So I'm gonna call him a paralyzed man. He may have not been paralyzed. He may have just been really struggling with whatever infirmity he had, but he's close enough to paralyze that he can't move or walk. So we're just gonna call him a paralyzed man to make it easy today. But we do know he was really struggling. Now, before we move on, I wanna stop and think about, I want, I want, us, I want us to think about this man for a second. Because here's what I know. I know when most of us, if we even read through a gospel, like we're really killing it, we're reading through a gospel, right? I'm reading ahead of where JT or Brandon or whoever is going to be in this passage today. We read a story like this, we see Jesus' miracle, and like, oh man, it's really cool. Um, But we don't really spend time to think about the person in the story, to put ourselves in that position, to, to really think about what this must have been like. So I just want us to try, just for a minute, so we can understand the enormity of this miracle, I want us to try to imagine what it must have been like for a, se- for a second. 38 years. In a time with no Medicaid. In a time with no government assistance. In fact, it probably would have been even worse because now they were occupied and oppressed by Rome. And the taxes were enormous and everybody was struggling. So even in the past where he would have gotten help from other people, it's probably even a little bit worse right now because people don't have what they used to have because Rome's oppressing them. So this man, we, it doesn't say it here specifically, but this man was very likely a beggar, destitute, a cast aside. And in this culture, unfortunately, a lot of times these people even got cast aside even more because people thought, well, that's because of your own sin. So you get what you, get what you pay for. Not only that, I know there's some of you in the room today that have struggled with long-term pain. A long-term some sort of disability some sort of sickness some sort of thing that has stuck with you that you've not been able to get rid of that's just there day after day again and again and you know how exhausting that can be right and it's not just physically is it if you have something like that that doesn't go away some it it wears you down emotionally it wears you down sometimes even spiritually Right, and, and considering that the, the average person during this time lived for 50 years, this man had spent a lifetime as an invalid being paralyzed, probably a beggar, probably destitute, probably having to ask people for help at every turn, as living kind of, if, if not just an invalid, maybe even an outcast. He has no real hope, a man that's like has no real chance, just a desperate chance that a pool might help him. That an angel might come and touch a pool and, and might help him, even though he couldn't get to the pool in time anyway, because we see in the, from, re, from the rest of the story that even when he tried to get there, he couldn't get there fast enough because he couldn't walk. So this man is hopeless, and then Jesus sees him. Look at verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he, he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Here we see Jesus' third Like I said before, a third of his seven great miracles in the Gospel of John. Miracles that really point us to, I don't know where our signs are today, but to to the the theme of our entire book, John, to know and believe. John wrote this book because he wants people to know Christ. He wants people, there it is, he wants people to believe in Christ. That, that's that's all this, this book is really about. And not just, just know on the surface and believe on the surface, but to know deeper and deeper and deeper who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's what these miracles do. They show us who Jesus really is so that we might believe, so they might believe, so we might believe. So Jesus asked this man, who can't get into the pool before others do, do you want to be healed? And man, that just seems like an obvious question, right? Of, co- of course he wanted to be healed, but, but I want us to just think, again, I want us to stop and think about it for a second. Because I don't know if this man really did want to be healed. Because it's been 38 years. And, and when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? I don't think he really saw what Jesus was actually asking him. But Jesus, in this moment, we're going to see from the rest of this story, Jesus in this moment, he saw past this man's sickness, he saw past this man's disability into the heart of the man. That gets made clear, because in a minute, Jesus is not going to say talk about his healing, but he's going to say, go and sin no more, so nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is seeing past what physically has happened to this man into this man's heart, and he knows what he actually needs to be healed from. But this man doesn't see this in this moment. He doesn't see that that's what Jesus, of course, is asking about his physically healing him. We should do good things for people, right? But there's always something below the surface. There's always something more going on with Jesus. The, the ailment this man had, the disability this man had, was just a picture of what this man really needed. No, Jesus asked him if he really wanted to be healed because I think you could see, I don't know if the man really did. We're going to see what I mean by that in a second. And isn't it the same even now for us, church? Isn't it similar for us? For, for those of us that actually do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and, and we actually do know what God did for us, is that this not what he did for every single one of us? I, I, I don't know how God woke you up. Do you remember? Do you remember the time when God woke you up to who he really is? For some of you, it was a moment. Right, it might have been like a miracle, it might have been this miraculous moment, it might have felt like that God was, was not, if not literally, almost literally talking to you, calling to you, the Holy Spirit wooing you. Maybe it was a moment, maybe it was a series of moments over time where the Holy Spirit wooed you to who He really is, but at some, at some point, if you're a believer in this room, God gave you some clarity, probably a moment of clarity or moments of clarity when the Holy Spirit was wooing you and you began to long for God in a way that you never longed for God before. Do you remember? Do you remember that? But it's in those moments, it's it's in those series of moments that God is showing us not just who he is, but how sick we really are, how unhealthy we really are, just how desperate we are of someone needing to save us. As we say, I think Brandon said in one of his sermons, I say it all the time, you have to understand the bad news before you can ever comprehend the good news of the gospel, right? And so when God starts to woo us, he starts to show us our deep, deep sickness, doesn't he? He, and he woos us, and he calls to us, and we start to realize just how deeply the sin runs in us. We, we start to understand just how desperate we are and how in need we are of a Savior. That if sin truly does run that deep, and if God really does take sin that seri- seriously, and, and we know we are sick, man, then we're in trouble. We're in big trouble, and we have no hope on our own of getting well. That's the realization that comes when we get saved. And then, or as Ephesians 2 says, but then Jesus steps in through the Holy Spirit and asks us, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Even now, even right now, for those of you that are in this room and you believe the world and our flesh and desires and temptations still try to own us, don't they? And sometimes they do own us. Sometimes they do own us, but even then, even then our Savior is there talking to us once again, whispering to us once again in our conscience, do you, and saying to us, do you want to be healed? I can heal you from that still. Do you want to be healed? Church, just as the water in that well was not the answer to the Samaritan woman's like, lo- like never-ending thirst in her soul for something more, how that water wasn't the answer. The water in this pool at Bethesda is not the answer for this man. It's not what's going to actually heal him. So in this moment, with just a few words, the one who John calls the Word of God, he just says a few words, get up, take up your bed and walk, this man's life is changed forever. Forever, his life is radically different than it was before. And that is just absolutely incredible. Thirty-eight years of being paralyzed or close to it, and he's healed. And you just love the response of this man, right? He he immediately comes up to Jesus and asks Jesus' name. He profoundly thanks Jesus for what he did, and then he dedicates the rest of his life to following him as a disciple, right? Wrong. That's not what happened in this story at all. And that's why I say this man didn't really want to be healed. Keep reading in verse 9 at the beginning. It's actually the second half of verse 9, but it's the beginning of the next paragraph. We call that 9b. Now, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the, the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. So there's, there's, there's really two things in this section that I want us to see really clearly. First thing I want us to see is the callousness of the Jews. The callousness of the Jews. Now, this could have just been Jewish people that were really serious about the Sabbath, but we see from later in the passage, we'll get there in a second, um, that these were very likely, I think we can say very confidently, these were the Jewish religious leaders. So the, he goes to the Jewish religious leaders, they find out or whatever, and they talk to this man. But did, did you see the response? Again, if you don't just read scripture like quickly, if you actually stop and kind of try to process it and think about it and pray over it, you'll see just how shocking this response is. I think a lot of us have heard this story before, but if you just really stop stop to think about this moment, what this moment would have been like. Um, This man had been unable to walk, to care for himself, to provide for himself, was probably an outcast for 38 years and then had been miraculously healed. It's unbelievable. And I think it's pretty obvious in the passage, these these men didn't doubt that he had been healed because there's other places where they kind of question whether he'd been healed or not. Uh, For 38 years being at this pool probably every day, they knew about this man. They knew what was going on, and so he comes up, and the most unbelievable thing probably most of them had ever seen or heard about in their entire life, a paralyzed man being healed like that. And what's their first response? Wait, you're telling me you carried your mat on the Sabbath? The mat that you had to lay on so you didn't get sores because you're paralyzed? That's their first question. Wait, you carried your mat on the Sabbath? What? We can give them a hard time. That's what what it was like then among among the religious elite, among the religious teachers. This is why Jesus was never hard on the sinner. The woman at the well, how gentle was he with her? Did he call out her sin? Absolutely he called out her sin, but he did it in love and it led to her salvation. You're going to actually see here in a minute, he's pretty gentle with this guy too. He is not gentle with the religious leaders because this is what they've done. This is what they created. It had nothing to do with God. It had nothing to do with God. Of course there were laws at that time around not working on the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. So at the heart of it, there's, there's, nothing, there's even something good in this, right? Trying to make sure people are following the law of God. That's a good and right thing. There's self-discipline there. But they had taken something that God gave to us for our good. God knows that we need to rest. God knows that we need a day specifically set aside to worship Him, to glorify Him, to get our hearts pulled towards Him, because in the end, He knows He is our hope and strength. He is our only chance at peace. He is our only chance to be who we're meant to be. He gives us the Sabbath. He demands the Sabbath because He loves us. This is, this is a loving thing that He gave to us because He's a good God, yet they had turned it into a burden. A burden used by people, not just religious leaders, but other people to judge, to divide, to look down on other people, to feel superior, to feel righteous. A people who cared more about being right than they cared about loving God and loving people. I'm going to do this to us again. Do you feel like we're in a time right now in our culture, I don't know about the rest of the world, right now in our culture that we're going to live in a time that's that radically different than that. It looks different with the religious leaders and Jews and th- th- that whole dynamic, but I don't know that we've ever, in our lifetimes, we've ever been in a time that we could relate more to this. I think our culture, and because our culture is so intertwined, again, with social media and the 24-hour news cycle and everything else, we're so entwined with our culture now without even knowing it. Now, even our churches are infested with this kind of thinking. Treating people not as people, but as reflections of what we think is right and wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we've got to the point where we, there's them out there. There's all those people, and that's all they are. And even in our own circles, even sometimes within our own lives, people are not people anymore. They're not representation of everything they are and everything they've done and who they are. They become a reflection of what we're against. Are you feeling me on this? That's, that's, that's who they become to you, a representation, I'm not saying you, but the general you, a representation of what we are against or what we think are wrong. People's lives, everything they are, boiled down to what they think, like let's just pick some, Boil down to what they think about Black Lives Matter. They're boiled down to what they think about a vaccine or a mask. They're boiled down to whether they're liberal, conservative, or something different. They're, they're boiled down to who they are is where they, where they stand on a particular theological topic or even how to do a certain type of ministry. That's who they are. That's how we treat them. That's how we separate things out now. That's normal. It's, it's what we do. We stand on, I am right, so you are wrong, and now you're the representation of that. People that we're called to love, to show grace to, to extend mercy to, and absolutely to speak truth to, but speak truth in love. For God says you can have every right answer and every gift that's in the Bible, but if you don't have love, you're nothing, you're a banging long, you're a waste of time, you're a microphone that nobody needs to listen to. In a culture now that is seemingly forcing us to pick a side, to cast people aside because they aren't like us or don't see things like us, I, we have to ask ourselves, like, if I'm just honest about where my heart is today, am I more like Jesus speaking and bringing healing into the hearts of people from wildly different backgrounds and opinions and histories? Or am I more like the religious Jew that can't see a miracle from their God, a miracle that's standing right in front of them because this man poses a problem to their worldview. That's the first thing I want us to see from this passage. Here's the second. It wasn't just the Jewish leaders. The healed man is questioned by the Jews for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And what happens? He immediately says, it was that guy that told me to do it. It was that guy that told me to do it. And we could just say in this passage, well, he was just responding to Jewish questions, but we're gonna see in a minute when he gets the chance and he finds out Jesus' name, he goes back to them again to tell them all about Jesus and he ends up being a catalyst. Now, I'm not saying it was all this man's fault, but he's a piece, he's a catalyst in the persecuting of Jesus for healing on the Sabbath because he went back to them. This man did not have good intentions in his heart. He, He saw the Jewish leaders questioning him and he's like, no, it was that man. It's his fault. Jesus just radically, radically changed his life forever, something he had lived a lifetime with, yet he cares more about these men's judgment, more about their views of him, than he does in honoring the man who just performed a miracle on his behalf and changed his life forever. One more time. We gotta stop and ask ourselves, at least in time, at least at times, Am I all that different than this man? What happens in those moments when you're given in, in the real world, you're given an opportunity to honor, to speak about, to show respect, to share the truth about your Savior? And, and heck, man, unlike the paralytic man at the time, we actually know his name. We, we already know exactly who he is, and for those believers in here, we already know exactly who he is and what he's done for us. Yet when our moment comes to tell the world about the amazing things that God has done for us, that, that he has healed our soul, that he has taken me from death to life, that he has given me hope, that he has given me eternal life, when that moment comes to share, man, but what's going on in church? What's going on in your life group? What's going on, man, to share about him? Do we lovingly, lovingly stand up for our king, or do we stay silent? or even just kind of shift the responsibility to someone else because we're worried about the judgment of the world, because we're worried about what people are going to think of us. We're worried about our reputation more than we're worried, concerned about worshiping our king and calling other people to him who can be healed. Are you more worried about what people might think about me, about you? Is that ever you? I mean, ever? Now, I want you to hear something before we move on. Hear me on this. If this is you, if either one of these are you, can be you, you start thinking about that, it can be depressing. Man, it can just bring you down. Because I think at times every person in this room can relate to being like the, Jew, the Jewish leaders or this healed man. But as I always say, as I've already said in this sermon already, to fully understand what Jesus has done, we have to clearly understand the bad news. We have to clearly understand how, how depraved our hearts can be at times. Because if we do, we can fully embrace and celebrate the good news, celebrate what Christ has done for us. And I want you to see, after this man betraying him, I, I'm calling it a betrayal after the Jewish leaders we see in the rest of the passage going to persecute him and kill him. I want you to see Christ's reaction to this man in verse 14. I, I mean, I love it. Look at verse 14. Afterward, after this had happened, Jesus found him, the healed man, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Exclamation point, right? That's important. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why, listen, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. So next week's gonna be kind of part two of this. We're gonna really talk about that Jesus calling, God his father, counting equality with God. That's where we're gonna transition next week and why they wanted to kill him. This week we're gonna focus more on this man and him healing on the Sabbath. But church, I just love love verse 14. I love that exclamation point there. Did you see it? I wanna read it one more time with the exclamation point in verse 14 afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and he said, see, you are well. Listen, Jesus knew what this man was up to. We see in the gospels, Jesus knows people's hearts. He knows what's going on. He knows what they did. He knew this man didn't stand up for him. And he knew that this man was going to end up being at least a little piece, a catalyst to his persecution and eventual death. But he was still excited to see this man healed. How amazing is that? How amazing is that as God? He was excited to see him healed. Listen, here, look, listen, God hates sin. Our pain, our sickness, listen, if you know, like indwelling sin and what sin caused at the fall, even our deaths are ultimately a cause of sin, not of God's original design. That all got broken in the garden. It's why I love that God hates sin. Sometimes we're like we're afraid to talk about stuff that God hates. God hates sin and I love that He does because when He restores all things, when He restores what was lost to all of us in the Garden of Eden in that perfection, all of this is gonna go away. God hates it. He's gonna restore it. He's gonna redeem it and there's gonna be no more paralytic men or people telling on other people or resentment or self-righteousness or any of these other things. And Jesus sees this man. He sees this man has been restored to at least being closer to what was originally intended before sin broke everything and Jesus responds to this restoration with joy and with excitement. And I love it. This man doesn't deserve that. This man's going to sell him out twice, yet here is Jesus excited for his healing. Excited for his healing. And then Jesus leaves us another just amazing example to follow. Not only is he excited for him, but out of a love for him, he tells him, go sin no more so nothing worse will happen to you. Go sin no more so nothing worse may happen to you. This is what speaking the truth in love looks like not avoiding the hard conversation because we're cowardly or because we're worried or because we h- hate confrontation, but because we love people. Like, listen, out of love, we're gonna call them out for their sin. We're gonna draw their sin to their attention because it puts them in eternal danger and say, go, hey, don't go sin, Jesus, don't go sin anymore so something worse doesn't happen to you. Maybe Jesus met worse in this life or maybe he met worse for an eternity, but Jesus says, go and sin no more. We simply live in a fallen world, world now, and bad things happening are just a part of it until Jesus returns. On the other hand, we have things like, like right here. Sometimes our pain, our suffering, is a result of our own sin. Do you hear me? Sometimes it's just a result, we live in a fallen world. So bad things happen, people get hurt, Things just, things just happen in a fallen, sinful world. Jesus is going to undo that someday, but that's where we are. But sometimes it is a result of our own sin. Now, whether that is a, literally a cause because we sin, like you go out and you get drunk and you decide to get in your car and you end up killing someone and you injure yourself and you injure someone else, sometimes the consequences of our sin look like that, right? But sometimes it's got allowing difficult things, hard things, painful things to happen to us so that he might use it to heal us. So, so just for clarity, I, w- I want you to see, in John 9, Jesus actually addresses this. Some people are coming down on this man saying that he's a sinner and that's why he's got this ailment, whatever it is. And Jesus is like, no, 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 it's not, this is not about his sin or his parents' sin or anything else, this just happened to this man. But in other places, like right here, Jesus is connecting this man's condition directly to his sin. So whether it's, again, a consequence this man sinned and then because of that sin something bad happened and he has to live with those consequences for the rest of his life, right? Like if you drive drunk and hurt someone and hurt yourself. Or whether this is God allowing something to happen to this man. Something that I would call evil, right? God doesn't do evil. He's not responsible for evil, but sometimes he allows evil to take place so that in the end good could come, like with Joseph and his brothers. who His brothers meant evil for him, but God used it for good. Sometimes God allows things to happen. I call them evil because they're a result of a sinful and fallen world. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. Sometimes God allows those things to happen for our good, to draw us to him. Read Romans 5. Read James 1, where it talks about how God uses our suffering to refine us into gold because he loves us, because he loves us. Knowing that helps us to see what Jesus is really doing here. Because he's not just wanting to heal this man physically, he's undoing the curse of sin. Do you see that? that? That's what's really what's happening. When healing this man, he's undoing the curse of sin. Yes, there are literal physical consequences that come because of the curse. But more importantly, he is calling this man away from sin to protect him. So that this might not happen to him more, so that he might be drawn to God, so that he might draw close to the Father who can actually and truly heal his soul, because ultimately that's what Jesus is after. Think about it. There were probably dozens, maybe more, of other people who were invalids, who were struggling, who had disabilities around this man, weren't there? Did he heal all of them? No, because that's not the real problem. Jesus is using this as a picture of who he is and what he really came to do. Yes, he cares about your pain and your suffering and whatever else you're going through, but in the end, he is after your soul, because that's what's going to bring you to his kingdom and to an eternity with him. And even more so, there were probably a lot of people around this pool that deserved healing more than this man did. Yet Jesus still saw this man, knowing he didn't deserve it and said, I'll I'll heal you. I'll heal you and I'll heal the rest of you if you'll just come. Because that's what our amazing Savior does. He takes what's broken and he takes the sick and he takes the hopeless. He takes those wrecked by sin He even takes those who are against him and he offers to undo the curse so that we might one step at a time move closer to what was lost in the garden when that curse fell. This is why this man going back to the religious leaders to me to tell on Jesus is so tragic. And this is why them ultimately deciding they're going to kill Jesus for healing on the Sabbath and then again what we're gonna see next week for calling God his father that's why this is so heartbreaking again think deeply about this Jesus is offering to bring restoration and healing to those who had supposedly been waiting for him for a thousand years or more these religious leaders they were supposed to be the ones to help the people see the Messiah come They had been waiting for a thousand years, and He's here, and He's healing, and He is undoing the curse. It's come, their day has come, their Savior has come, their Messiah is here, but they love their own way. They love the world's way far too much to be bothered with God's way. And that's the world we live in now, church. So often we are called to do it the world's way and we can't, be, we can't be bothered to do it God's way because do you know what that person said? Do you know what they think? Do you know how they approach this? Do you know how they feel about this? I'm done. That we can't see that they are children created by God in his image that he's calling us to engage as Jesus engaged. Church, I think we need to look deep into our hearts today. Not just hear a message, but like actually think about this today, deep into our hearts, deep into our lives, and and ask ourselves, maybe at least at times, am I like this man? Do I sometimes squander the amazing things that Jesus Christ has done to save me and for me because I'm more interested in what the world wants? Because I'm more interested in what the world offers? Because I'm more interested in what people might think of me do I sometimes not speak out for Christ because I'm worried about the judgment of others? Not say the thing I should say, not do the thing I should do. I'm cared, I care more about the judgment of others than a savior who died on that cross to pay for my sins and rescue me. Or maybe if you're honest today, you're a little bit more like these Jewish leaders. God has called us to love to show grace, to give mercy, to bring healing, to speak truth and love. But we are so entrenched in our way of doing things. We are so entrenched in our opinions, our own personal rules, that how life should be, so given over to our own worldview, that we see people not as image bearers of God, that we are called to love, but as problems. As someone to be against. And if it's possible this is you, at least at times, I want you to see these men were standing on their righteousness. And from the outside, they looked righteous while Jesus was in the trenches with the broken. Where are you? I think we just need to own these things today, church. I think we just need to own it. Just own them fully, Like, like let's not, make, not let our own hearts make excuses, not, not try to justify it or explain things away or explain the way this person treated me or the saying that they said or the thing that they did, and just own who, who we are supposed to be, who God has called us to, and just call it. If, if we've been walking in some of this, just call it what it is, it's sin. Right, just call it what it is, it's sin. We can say it. it's sin, and we are called to put sin to death. Do you know why? Because when we put sin to death, then we come alive in Christ. He wants us to have a newness of life, to have joy and purpose in Him, and sin will rip that away and try to pull you away from everything God intends you for. He wants us to put it to death, not because He wants to condemn us. Romans 8, you are no longer condemned if you are in Christ. He wants to set us free to who we actually are in Christ. Newness of life, peace, joy, hope, fulfillment in Jesus. This is what God wants for you. So call it what it is, sin. Feel the weight of it. Feel the heaviness of it. And then look to Jesus, church. Then look to Jesus. Don't make light of it. Just take the heaviness of your sin to the seriousness of what Jesus did on the cross and the power of his resurrection and be set free and move forward. Listen, Jesus is excited for your healing. Do you feel that? He's not looking to condemn you or put his thumb down on you and say, why aren't you better? Which is how a lot of you walk your faith out. It's why it feels so heavy. It's why you're so condemning to other people, if if not in person, in your hearts. Jesus wants to set you free and he is excited for your healing. He's excited for your, your redemption. Jesus, who is not waiting to give us what we deserve, but to give us what? Grace. Grace. Jesus wants to undo that curse, and if you're in here today, and you're a believer, he has already undone the power of that curse. It's already been undone, you already have what you need through through him paying for your sins on that cross, and by the power of his resurrection, where you get to be raised as a new person in him, you have been set free from the power of it, you've been set free from the power of the curse. Yes, sometimes we give into it, Yes, sometimes we go back to terrible things. Yes, sometimes we go back to more of a worldly attitude or a self-righteous attitude or a self-condemnation attitude, but you have been set free from living in that. Jesus, who is your King, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, who is indeed interceding for us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might walk restored, so that we might walk out of death into life, so that we might walk out of the darkness in this world into the joy of His marvelous light. That's who you are, Christian. That's who you are, child of God. That's who you are, brother of Christ. That's who you are, inheritor of all things in Christ. This is who you are. And your savior is excited and interceding so that you can experience this. So yes, our sin and our failure, church, it is serious and we need to take it serious. But, but, Christ's joy and mercy in healing you from that failure is more. It is more, and we get to celebrate that this Advent season, that our Christ came and was born into weakness and to be persecuted and hated and just and killed because his mercy for you is more. It is more than your failure. In a dark time in our culture, church, don't you dare give in. You don't have to hate. You don't have to be a part of the division. You don't have to pick a side. Love as Christ did. The only side is, are you a believer in Jesus Christ and going to heaven, or are you not a believer in Christ and going to hell? Other than that, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, so we fight for truth. We fight for what the Bible says. Yes, we do all those things, but we do it in love. We don't pick sides. We love as Christ did, with truth, with mercy, with love, with undeserved grace. And so let's be a people that absolutely fight for truth, that absolutely, you know how much we love the Bible at this church and we're gonna fight for what the word of God says. Absolutely fight for this, but let's fight in a way that the the world says, man, look at the way this church loves. Look at the way they show grace to every kind of person from every kind of background, from every kind of culture, from every kind of race, from every kind of opinion and worldview. Look at the way this church loves despite the fact that they disagree and they fight for the truth of the Bible. Let's be a church that reflects that kind of love to the world, a church that reflects our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are tremendously grateful today to be here to worship You. A day when we just turn our hearts and minds away from this world and to You, God. I just pray today that we can, we can actually hear what You have for us today. We can hear and, and see from Your example today, Christ, because the world is trying to bombard us with everything but You. And so, God, I pray for everyone in this room, including my own heart, this, this wouldn't be a day that we just walk out of here and go have lunch, but we would actually think about Jesus, about what you have done and what you've done for us and the unbelievable grace you showed even to this man who didn't deserve it at all, but yet you were there excited for his healing and calling him away from his sin because you loved him. Help us to reflect this, God. But we know the only way we can do this is if you radically change our hearts to be more like you. You sanctify us to be more like you, Jesus. So God, we pray that you do the work. And then that we would follow in faith. And then lastly, God, today I pray you would help us to remember that we are not people of the flesh. If we are a believer in here, we are not people of the flesh, but we are people of light. We are not enslaved to the curse any longer. That Jesus, you are already undoing it, have undone its power, and you're undoing it in our lives as we are sanctified. And for help us to believe that we are children of God, that we can walk in the light, that we can be people of hope and truth and joy. And then finally, God, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, I pray today through your, through your truth, through your word, that God, that they would long to accept you. God, that you would woo their hearts and call them away from their sin into redemption through you, Jesus Christ, who paid for their sin on that cross so they didn't have to. God, I pray you would rescue them from hell so that we could celebrate for an eternity with them in heaven. God, I'm so thankful to be back with these people. I'm so thankful that you have called us to your church because God, it's not always easy, but it is right. It is your bride and it is good. And so God, help us all to fight to make your church a beautiful picture of your gospel right here in this room into the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.